tonight on Arena. We celebrate all things theatrical as we do a deep dive into this year's Dublin Theatre Festival programme. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Yes, indeed, tonight's programme dedicated to the Dublin Theatre Festival. 40 productions are on offer happening all over the city between the 20th of September and the 15th of October. There are Irish and international shows, including two productions by leading Brazilian artists. We'll be talking to one of them, Alice Ripple, about her show, Zona Franca. On the homegrown front, we have a new opera from Irish National Opera and several new plays from established companies and if you fancy a trip to the Civic Theatre in Tala you will be rewarded with a new work from the award winning writer of Heaven Pure Mule and Eden Eugene O'Brien O'Brien who I am calling the Bard of the Midlands brings us um, the character of Scott Kelly who entertains the audience with an encounter with his hero David Bowie the play is suitably enough called Falling to Earth My Summer with Bowie delighted that Eugene O'Brien is with me in studio this evening so here we are um, I, I never didn't think we'd get uh, David Bowie into the Midlands but you've, ma- you've managed to do it in Falling to Earth My Summer with Bowie yeah. via the character of Scott Kelly. How did how did this come about, Eugene? Um, well, I had the character of Scott before. I'd written a kind of short story set at Christmas time about this character called Scott Kelly. He was kind of down on himself, kind of semi-traumatised from a kind of a tough upbringing, mm. looking after a kind of a daddy. And um, I, I wanted to use him in some way. And then I heard stories about uh, Grouse Lodge, which is this recording studio in the middle of Ireland where Radiohead have been and R.E.M. and loads of people. And Michael Jackson was there famously in 2006. Yeah. And uh, there was all rumours about him being around and they closed the bowling alley in Tullamore so Jackson could go in and bowl and all this kind of stuff. So that kind of got me thinking and I, I heard a story about him visiting a pub and I went, that could be a way of getting Scott to do something. And I wanted to write a show like Marilyn and Me or the great Ken mm. Loach film Looking for Eric, which right, had the yeah. ordinary, very down on himself, working class Manchester guy and, er- and Cantona yeah. appears to him and teaches him things about life. <laughs> um, and so I just thought, you know, that would be really good. An icon and a very ordinary and, dairy and man. You, yeah, so icon and, very, and, and, and an ordinary Midlands guy. Did you did you play around with the Michael Jackson idea for a while? I, I, I kind of did and then for a variety of reasons dropped it uh, for, you know, maybe, maybe obvious reasons. Mm. And then, but my big musical hero has always been David Bowie and I saw him, I got kind of obsessed with him in the early 80s and I remember saving up all my money. I was working in my daddy's supermarket and in Eaton Derry. And I saved up all my money and went up to Golden Discs and just bought all the CDs, you know, from Space Oddity <laughs> up to Scary Monsters. Uh, and I just, yeah, I just loved Bowie and, and and managed to see him in 2003. It was his last tour, the reality tour in the 02 arena. And it was, it was, I cried when he came on stage, the smoke came up and Rebel Rebel came on. And I was overcome. I was like a girl at the Beatles concert. I just started screaming. I lost my jet over it. You know, it was unbelievable. And um, he ha- and he lived up to it. Like he was yeah. everything you'd want him to be. So it's a kind of love letter to Bowie in many ways, the show. But really, it's a it's about Scott. It's a transformative kind of tale about him. And he very much is in the in the theatre 
Scott Kelly walks in off the street almost to tell you this kind of amazing story about his, how his life. It's set in 2014. Right. Where Bowie is Maria in Grouse Lodge and he's working on the, on the Black Star album. And he's not well. He's obviously his health ah, is right. failing. So you, you you took that biographical element of, yeah. of Bowie's life into it, into it, and that he's just, and I'm trying to imagine what he would have been like. I think he was great. Would have been great crack to hang around by yeah. all accounts. Uh, but again, he's he's looking back on his life as well, though, and and you know um, a lot of things are are kind of coming into his head as he writes this album about death about his demise yeah, which, which we, we all came, came to know as Lazarus of course mm. um, if, on the character of Scott you mentioned that he he had a difficult a difficult background in the short story that you that you wrote mm. give us a sense of who he is and just what he's dealing with in his life uh, well I suppose he, he, he came from very difficult parents uh, as he says himself they were both all, all right people but together they were a nightmare Mm. and he was kind of an unwanted appendage in the house and they fought with each other. They were drinkers. He would have been, suffered physical abuse. He hid under tables, all that kind of stuff. So he's, you know, he's yeah. he's from that thing and he's traumatised and he's not able to move on with his life. Very much he's stuck. But Bowie was the great kind of saviour. When he'd retreat up to his room, he'd listen to Bowie and Bowie would give him some solace, you know. And the other side of Bowie, I think, bringing Bowie into a play in particular, he's such a dramatic character. He's he's in innate theatricality. Absolutely. And he's like, he, well, he came from theatre, I think, and he mm. came from mime and he came from, as he said himself, he kind of, he was, I'm a magpie. Like he, he kind of stole from everyone and that was what went into all these different characters and everything like that. So this is kind of, I think, Probably Bowie with the mask off a bit more, you know what yeah. I mean? That he trusts, he's in the studio with this guy and he kind of trusts him and he's able to kind of talk to him, you know? Yeah, because um, uh, Scott, Scott and he end up, uh, Scott gets a job as a security, a security guard, man. essentially. Yes, uh, his uncle is a security, local security guy. So he gets out there and by a few a few twists and turns, he ends up being there because Bowie likes him. Mm. And uh, yeah, it goes from there. So, obviously, writing Scott and writing Scott speaking was no problem to you because he was the Midlands character. He was all of those things. Imagining the kind of the non-theatrical, the non-performing David Bowie. How difficult an aspect was that when um, it came to writing the script? Yeah, difficult. You know, look, it's all it's it's a bit of crack, really. You just you just try and. You just try and imagine it, you know, and you've seen many interviews with him and you've seen the way he talks. And he had a kind of a mixture of quite intellectual uh, and then he had a kind of Barrow Boy, Brixton type, mm. you know, I love. Like he had a mixture of these two things and I think he, he was great fun to be around and very inquisitive man. And, you know? and the other thing is, was important to point out that it's Scott who's telling us this story. Absolutely. It's just him on stage. It's just Scott on stage. It, this is not a jukebox musical. Please don't come if you're expecting all the hits. Uh, there is one, one great performance because Scott enters a talent show uh, to win a girl's heart and he asks David to coach him. So there is a great set piece that uh, the great uh, Stephen Jones, who's, our, who's mm. our man, who's doing amazing work in, in, in the um, rehearsal room and, uh, and Jim Nolan is directing uh, brilliantly. So we're very excited over that. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's a few good few surprises. There's enough for Bowie fans in it, yeah. but it's not about Bowie. All right, uh, I, hope, I hope I'm not going to give too much away saying that we're going to hear Ziggy Stardust, are we? <laughs> that's all right. That's it's all, always good to hear and it. And it's always good to hear it, and that's why I'm going to play it right now. <laughs>
bit there of Ziggy Stardust one of the songs um, that will feature as part of um, Falling to Earth My Summer with Bowie the new show that Eugene O'Brien has been speaking to us about and while we were listening to Ziggy Stardust Anna Brennan has come in to us Anna uh, we'll be talking to you in detail about your own opera Breathwork a, a little bit later on Anna but I was interested to know when, when you heard that Eugene O'Brien, because I heard the two of you talking outside before we came to her, and there was a lot of discussion going on there. Have you started uh, plans for the opera about David Bowie with Eugene? <laughs> we were mostly just talking about our love for Sligo. Oh, is that what <laughs> and, it was? Uh, yeah, our shout outs to Ennis Grown and Curry, I think in particular. Yeah, right. um, and fondness for the wild nature out there. But who knows, you know, if an opera comes from that, are, are, <laughs> we can you, talk after. Are you a Bowie fan? Oh, of course. Yeah. Mm. Um, and as Eugene was just saying there, you know, the eras of Bowie, the the mysticism in his voice, but also the way I have such appreciation for when somebody is so earnest and they, they sing in their voice, as in their speaking voice, mm. their, you know, their voice when it comes to obviously the, the things that are most important and dear to them. But there's no other person that can really sing that song as well as they could or write those lyrics as much as they could. That's you know, interesting because, so. you know, well, I suppose when we think of opera, sometimes we think of, you know, the high flown performance and the very much a, a melodramatic style of delivery. But you're looking for something then that is closer to reality. Is that right? Closer to a type of realism or at least a real voice? I think... Treating the voice in its extremes or at least in its varied timbres is really interesting to me. So really honing in on the nature of a whisper or spoken voice and seeing the musicality in that. But also, as you say, with the operatic voice and the technique involved, really embracing that skill mm. and that time that those singers have put into, you know, progressing and discovering the depth of their voice. Um, and I think trying to marry the two for me is very important and I think can be very engaging for the listener. And I guess, um, Eugene, just going back to that Bowie thing and the fact that it's Scott Kelly and Stephen Jones who's performing the character of Scott Kelly, we're getting all of this in the wonderful music of the Midlands accent. I presume that's in there, is it? It is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's Scott is, 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 a, is, a, is a townie, you know. So it's got all that kind of um, musicality or that you know that 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 kind of flat great midland accent and humor uh you know so that that's absolutely mm. it yeah and and if, again Ian is speaking about that idea of you know trying to get to the true voice that I'm still wondering about how you went about doing that with Bowie because you you go into lots of Bowie's personal life as well particularly his family life and his brother yes we the thing is that he Scott has to kind of learn things from him. And mm. so Bowie has to kind of go into stuff about forgiving his parents, which Scott has not been able to do. So and we Bowie go into in that a bit. Would be forgiving his parents over the brother? Over yes, his brother, his, his brother Terry was a, half, was a half brother and he suffered from schizophrenia. And the father used to mistreat him, but treated Bowie was the father's son. So he treated Bowie very well, but he mistreated his stepson, Terry. And the mother was seemed to be a very cold woman who stood back and let it happen. Bowie was always very guilty about it. Mm. He wrote a lot of songs about it. Uh, a, a crack in the sky and a hand reaching down to me from Oh You Pretty Things and all that. It was all about Terry. And then he felt guilty that he was making loads of money and being famous and poor Terry was in institutions and killed himself in 1985. So we go into that. We don't go into too much of it mm. uh, because it's not, Bowie's story but enough of a mention of it that 
Scott, uh, they they can kind of um, talk about family trauma together, essentially. Yeah. You know? And you, you spoke to me earlier about this idea of the trans- transformative aspect of, I don't know whether you were speaking spe- specifically about the transform- transformative aspect of Bowie's music or of music in general. Uh, well, music in general, of course, but I think in this case it is Bowie's music that kept Scott from probably jumping in the canal, mm. you know what I mean? And uh, that great solace and comfort that music does give us all in moments of life where we, you know, um, there are songs that we put on. I can remember songs I listened to when I was a very, very, very low ebb and they kept you going through, you know, and then the songs you put on when you're happy and the soundtrack of your life that we all kind of can have. You and know? did you, I mean, in, in Eden Derry, growing up in Eden Derry, was, was Bowie some kind of other world for you? He he was in in a way, uh, uh, but I suppose he came on a like I got into music from listening to Radio Luxembourg and listening to Dave Fanning on the <laughs> on the radio, and they were invaluable and John Peel and all that. So you mm. got you got into it like that, and uh, Bowie was a uh, was a huge part of that, you know. Then a little bit later, you get into Velvet Underground, and then you could do all that stuff, but. Uh, yeah, he was he was a great. Uh, he introduced me to other things as well. He was in a Brecht play on BBC called Bal, so I kind of got into Brecht. And then he was in something. And you know, were you already was, interested in theatre at that big time? time? Yeah, yeah. theatre and film. Films are my main things. I used to go to the lo- my my family owned the local cinema, so I used to live in the local cinema. And absolutely, that's where I got my love of all of this. I think. And were they allowed to bring popcorn from your father's shop into the local cinema? Were they what? Were they allowed to bring popcorn from oh, your father's yeah. shop? Oh, the, <laughs> no, the, we had a little shop at Mrs. Early behind the glass and she would put out all the penny sweets in the Captain Hurricane bars and there was about 10,000 10, children at the matinee. It was completely against health and safety. Uh, <laughs> and we watched everything from the Jungle Book to the Wild Bunch. There was no yeah. censorship. Don't land your father in trouble. I'm sure he was doing everything legal at the time. You don't want him following no. you on, the, on, on that front. Was there an artist, um, uh, Eugene, touching on this idea of that transformative aspect of music? Was there a particular artist, a particular type of music that was that for you, Ian? Oh, God, that's such a good question. I think I really enjoy artists that explore sound and try and mask it in a way. So, Oh, some of it comes to mind is Laurie Anderson and she's obviously incredibly theatrical in how she works with the voice and with the violin which would be my mm. main instrument but also um, she has um, a beautiful album about a, fl- a flood that happened to her apartment in New York and it's about 30 or something tracks and um, it's all a, it's mostly spoken word but there's experimental kind of electronics in it and then Kronos Quartet um, are the main ensemble and I think I'm really inspired by taking all of those elements and putting them in a melting pot and seeing what comes out of it and it's incredibly intimate to her like it's such personal music but at the same time it can be so fulfilling to a listener who has not experienced any of those things so. Well funny as you describe Laurie Anderson in the way you've just done it it really makes me think of your own opera <laughs> which is what we would we, speak about in a little bit of detail now uh, for this year's Dublin Theatre Festival an immersive piece is called Breathwork uh, the librettist here is David Pountney and it's Irish National Opera the, produ- the producing company here what kind of world are we in 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 breathwork? It's a kind of sounds like a slightly frightening place to me in many ways. It's Climate fright- change is definitely on your mind. I think it's frightening, but <clears throat> without deterring people, mm. I want it to be a reflective place. So I think there's such a fine line between hope and grief, destruction and life, you know, mm. death and rebirth and 
finding kind of that line between the dark and the light is something that I really want to explore in this and in an immersive way. So this is very much a short immersive piece where a very small audience number are brought into a space together um, with a very small cast and a lot of pre-recorded electronics. So, so we have three singers and two dancers, is it? No, just three singers, actually. So mm. we have the wonderful Kellyanne Masterson, who's a soprano. We have Michelle O'Rourke, mezzo-soprano, and we have Andrew Gavin, tenor. And um, these three people aren't necessarily characters in and of themselves, but they just inhabit this space. And the idea is that there's six different performances throughout the day um, over the course of the three days. And the audience are invited to kind of enter this world, experience it and hopefully take something away from it. Mm. And each performance in a way can be quite different because there's lots of aleatoric elements that are involved in the writing. Lots of what type of elements? Aleatoric. Explain that to me now. No problem. I love writing aleatoric music. Um, It's a very handy way to get the most out of your performer, uh, in my view, because I love writing for specific people or at least um, workshopping music for a a musician's sensibilities. Mm. And aleatoric music is where you give them essentially um, instructions and that may be pitches. It could be um, just text. Yeah. And then you give them a certain amount of improv improvisation um, allowance, let's say. So it's kind of a restricted improvisation. So aleatoric music could be, here is a cell of five notes, but sing it in any tempo you want to do and maybe change the inflections, change the accents. And you kind of can explore all those those different ways together. Yeah, so you might give them five notes and say, sing these as slowly, as quickly, sing them as many times as you want. But all you have are these five notes. You do them with them what you want. Exactly. And I think... Obviously, there's huge restriction in that, but there's huge room for play. And it means that each musician and each singer will bring something different to that and mm. the, the different ways that they enjoy singing. Because I think that's a huge element as a performer. I, I want to be able to give my own little mm. bit of magic and um, allowing that room for musicians to as play. As a writer now, you, you know, Brian, how would you feel about aleatoric plays where you might say to an actor, here's roughly what I want you to say, off you go and do that. Yeah, no, oh, there's just too much of that going on nowadays. You know, just making theatre thing. No, 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 no. People want, you know, just write a script and you hand it to them and make sure Learn that. It. Learn that now. No, I think it's good. I, I'm very lucky at the moment because I have two writers in the room because Stephen Jones is a writer as well. And uh, and Jim Nolan, of course, great writer from mm. Waterford. So it's really great to have two people who really know about a script and what works and what doesn't. And it's, so it's it's a, a great thing to have in the room. Yeah, and and I guess the the thing about I mean when we think about composition in in musical terms, in it is literally about putting things together. So you're just giving them the building blocks and letting them do a little bit of the com- the compositional work. Exactly, you're setting the the rules of the game yeah, and then they are playing the game so to speak and you're giving them the colours to paint with and I completely agree with Eugene is that like the people and how their, their sensibilities are so important so I think you learn very quickly when you're workshopping or you're rehearsing a piece what's going to work and what's not and to try and engineer it in such a way that you're again embracing the things that are working mm. and maybe putting aside the things that don't so you kind of go into it thinking or at least the way I approach this piece is thinking okay what are the rules that I can make and within that construct, there's enough to go on to engineer. I want to listen to a little bit of a yeah. clip from, from the opera because it will give us a sense of, I suppose, the open-ended nature of the, of the, of the piece. 
we're on. We're in the area of climate change here, aren't we? Because it's a, is it a seventeenth century text that's been used partly, or a seventeenth century report? It is. So David Pountney is the librettist of um, a work I'm still in progress of writing, and he found this seventeenth century text, and it's actually a paraphrasing of Book of Isaiah mm-hmm. in the Bible, and it's very, very sinister, but very relatable. So something from the seventeenth century, harping so true. Is All right, let's have a listen to a little bit of it. Just a little section there from uh, Anna Brennan's opera Breathwork, and and that those those lyrics. We infected the sea with our toxic breath, with our venom, with our aggression, with our greed. <laughs> could have been written yesterday, and it could be written about climate change and all that's going on. Totally, I think th- those actual um, segments are actually written by David Pountney. So there's a middle section of the piece, which is mm. the 17th century text, which is uh, far. It's in a vernacular that's far um, more foreign to us. But as you can see, what we just heard there is a little more modern day. But it is very curt and very direct. And I think a part of again doing something quite immersive is that yeah. you can be very direct in your conversation with the audience and you don't want to hit people over the head with it but at the same time you want to leave room for them to take something away and so I've kind of used David's text in as vague or not vague abstract way to not create a narrative that's yeah well I have to say from what I've heard from the both of you we've got two fascinating very different but fascinating (laughs) shows that we've been speaking about Falling to Earth My Summer with Bowie by Eugene O'Brien starring Stephen Jones as Scott Kelly is directed by Jim Nolan it'll be at the Civic Theatre in Tala from the 29th through until the 15th of October and Breathwork uh, Aina Brennan's opera is at the Project Arts Centre from uh, in Dublin from the 20th through until the 30th of September as Aina said six performances per day and because of the aleatoric nature of the music six very different performances one can guess further details on all of that uh, both of those and everything we'll be speaking about this evening on dublintheaterfestival.ie And welcome back to our Dublin Theatre Festival special programme on Arena this Friday evening. We dealt with some domestic material before the break. Let's go international now. Born in Rio de Janeiro, Alice Ripple initially studied psychology before turning her attention to dance, motivated by curiosity about the body's capabilities and a desire to explore movement. Now she brings her company, Chia Suave, and their show, Zona Franca, to Dublin. Ten astonishing dancers, Alice calls them interpreters, also from Rio. They explore the theme of freedom through a mix of urban dance styles, including voguing, samba and hip-hop, a freedom all the sweeter since President Lula took up office earlier this year. Delighted to be joined by Alice Udipal on the line right now. That, that interest in psychology, first of all, Alice, if I could... And the shift then from the the mind to the body when you, when you moved into the world of dance, how did that happen? Hello, uh, thank you for for this interview. Uh, well, it happens that I was studying psycho uh, psychology in a university in Rio, and then I had a 
I I I start to study the the kind of uh, uh, psychoanalysis in the story that in the history that uh, went to the body like uh, Heishi and 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 uh, Heishi, I don't know how you spell and uh, mm. how you pronounce it in in your language. But uh, in fact, and then and then I I I was curious about it and I I look it a bit for and I I ended uh, arriving in a in a school in Rio that called Angel Viana it's a school also for dance but also for therapies that use the body and I and then I got closer to dance each time more and then I fell in love and I think uh, now I can look to the past and and think that uh, it was only mm. an excuse because I know that since the beginning I was more for the arts than for the the the, the science therapies. the science side of things perhaps yeah but I suppose it, yes. in in many cases getting out of the head would be one of the things that uh, psychoanalysis might want you to do to to concentrate in some other uh, area and concentrating on the body is quite certainly one way of doing that zona franca I suppose could I say free zone mm-hmm. or open zone that might be a, yeah. a, a kind yeah. of a translation there what is the show about and how does f- a free zone or an open zone how does that feed into what we're seeing and what we will see in the the, the show uh, well for me this title has uh, different meanings uh, I feel like a zona franca or like a free zone it's something that we look for when we are improvising and looking for the scenes I look for each time more that the dancers they they can feel that they are in a free environment to improvise and to bring inside them and their memories and their hopes and their dreams uh, each time more free to put everything and then I take care of creating the piece uh, from what they bring and then so this is an important uh, tool that we use to to look for more freedom and then to try to get more close to our emotions and our sensations uh, in a more honest way, more, I don't know, truth yeah, way. So, so, uh, and so in many ways, that sounds as if the, the dancers are very much part of the creative process in that you're, you're looking to what comes from them as what you might shape in terms of, in terms of being a choreographer. You refer to dancers as interpreters. Just explain... What, what what that means for you and why you, you differentiate in that way between a dancer and an interpreter? Um, in fact, I use uh, both terms. I think both are possible. They are dancers. Mm. But uh, uh, each time more, we are looking for a way of expression that it's more than dance. So we have some some scenes in the piece that you can feel uh, more theatrical or or. Uh, sometimes we improvise also with with a voice, with speaks. Uh, we don't have text, but during the process, we it can it can happen. Uh, and also, we you, they use the voice to to do a kind of a, a live soundtrack in some moments. So maybe they are more than dancers, you know. It's mm. yeah. There, there's an acting there's an acting aspect to what they're doing as as well. Um. The the company and indeed uh, this this show uh, there's a quite a quite a political element to what's involved in in your work and this I think has specifically to do with the recent change of president in your in your country maybe talk to me about how that change from Bolsonaro to Lula has uh, affected your work and how it's present in the work. 
Yeah. In fact, when we start the research, it was in the last months of uh, Bolsonaro government. So it was like a, such a high level of uh, tension that I think I'd never saw in my, my country because uh, he had already many votes, many people that were supporting him. And so it was difficult to, the, that Lula could arrive again in the presidency. So it was, we, we felt that we were in a, in a rehearsal room. We were looking for a piece, looking for a subject to work, but it was impossible. So, so what we, uh, the only thing we could research was the tension itself, you know, was the hope, was the fear, was, uh, the, the capacity, the, the possibility of a country to change, uh, what, what makes us the, the desire that the courage to change or to keep the, the ways, mm. the things the way they are. So this, we could not uh, touch any other thing but this, you know. So it was it, it ended becoming the atmosphere of the peace itself, the possibility of changing or not changing as a community in global or as uh, individuals. What, what makes you uh, possible to face something difficult in your life and change or when you don't go for it, you know, this kind of questions. Yes. Uh, it was, yeah. And and going back to the title of the show, Zona Franca, or Free Zone, it would seem that all types of dance are welcome here. Um, you really have, you've voguing in there, you've hip hop, I believe, in there as well. Uh, not surprisingly, there's some Brazilian samba in there. Uh, how many different styles of dance would you say are, are represented in the piece, uh, Alice? Yes, it's it's uh, also I think the the name of the piece it has to do with it because the, the interpreters the, the dancers they are young uh, now they're not not that young but when we start the group the, like ten years ago they were and uh, and so they they bring me a new way of mm. working uh, that is very connected to internet. Uh, and the and the urban dance styles from Brazil because they they change they do like kind of exchange of dances of choreographies and musics that is very uh, you don't have the rights yeah. of the of the authors uh, and so for me in the beginning it was a bit difficult to understand and so they bring me you know a kind of step or or even a choreography and then I ask them but. Uh, where where did you learn it? Who is the choreographer? No, yeah. it was internet. Okay, but and so it was. I started to understand there is a new way of working, and it's a bit like a free zone. There, you everything is possible, and have it have good and democratic aspects and bad aspects in yeah. in you know it's complex. So I think it it has to do with my meeting with this group to. You know, to enter in this yeah. universe, and and yes, and, and Brazil, it's it's very natural because in Brazil, the 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 contemporary dance, the the more it's, academic dance, it's very mixed with the urban and popular dance styles because it's part of our culture in a way that is very mixed. Yes, and I suppose so that's it's also a, yeah. It's it's as if it's it is a zona franca in and of itself when it comes to dance. From what you're saying, Brazil, Alice, yeah. thank you so much for yeah. speaking to us this evening. That's Alice Ripoll and Zona Franca with Cha 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 Suave. The title of the company is at the O'Reilly Theatre in Dublin from the 28th to the 30th of September. And let me give you a little flavour of the kind of music. I think there's a touch of the samba in this section from the Alice Ripple show that we've been talking about, Zona Franca. 
So there you go, some of the music from Zona Franca. Alistair Paul speaking to us about her there, about it uh, previous to that and her company Cha Suave at the O'Reilly Theatre in Dublin from the 20th through until the 30th of September as part of this year's Dublin Theatre Festival. Playwright and performer Tim Crouch is a rule breaker. His plays include My Arm, An Oak Tree and The Author. They all reject theatrical convention and invite the audience to help create the work. His new play, which he's bringing to the Theatre Festival, is called Truths a Dog must to kennel. The title is from a retort made by the fool in King Lear when the king threatens his fool with the whip. And that is the starting point of the play when the lone actor on stage invites his audience to observe uh, the audience at a production of King Lear. But in true Tim Crouch fashion, the audience must do a lot of the work themselves. Delights to be joined by Tim on the programme this evening. Do you think of yourself as a rule breaker, Tim? Oh, Sean, no, not really. Weirdly, I think I'm just going back in time. I'm getting more, uh, I'm going back to basics, really, with my work. Uh, Maybe dismantling some of the structures that have been placed on top of theatre to see what was there in the first place. That's, I don't sort of sit down and go, right, what rules (laughs) will I break? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, they're, they're super simple. They're, these are requests for an, imagine, for an imaginative engagement. That's what mm. they are. That's what this show is. That's what they all are. Uh, and I think that's pretty old-fashioned in one respect. But but uh, so old-fashioned that it's now pretty, you know, daring and, and contemporary. Uh, Was there something specifically in that line from The Fool, truth's a dog, must to kennel? Did it speak to you in some way about, you know where you're at in your own career, where theatre is at in its current uh, manifestations. What way did it speak to you? Well, I I hit upon it before Donald Trump created his own truth social, that's for sure. (laughs) But I think probably more around the way truth is dealt with in the world rather than the way truth is dealt with in the theatre or in my life or, you know, in a a personal capacity. Uh, There is a sort of slippery quality to truth at the moment that makes it very hard to know what's what. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea of sending truth to a kennel to be punished uh, rang lots of bells for me. Um, and there's also, of course, the character of the fool in King Lear, who is this enigma uh, because they disappear halfway through the play. There is absolutely no sort of justification for their departure. They're there one minute and they're gone the next. Uh, so that's a line from The Fool, and it's The Fool who was kind of one of the primary focuses of, of my approach with this play. And of course, the, the, the Fool in many ways in King Lear and in many Shakespearean plays, and I suppose even as a theatrical trope, The Fool is often the great truth-teller and suffers for that for that great truth-telling. Well, you know, I, I would see The Fool sort of a, as a as an artist in that play, you know, the role of the artist. He, he tries to speak truth to power, uh, and power resolutely <laughs> ignores him. You know, he has no beneficial effect at all on the story of King Lear. 
Uh, and then the world becomes so unmitigatingly terrible that I'm not surprised he buggers off. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that's one of the thoughts in the whole piece is around the idea of where the hell are the art? What do the artists do? Where do the artists go? And it was written out of, well, in the tail end of lockdown, really, uh, where there was a genuine existential doubt around what's happening yeah. next. Uh, for for art and what's happening next for live art particularly. Yeah, but you, you say there that that, that it's, it's the fool himself who buggers off, to use your phrase precisely. Um, do, do he That suggests he has agency in that. Do you have a sense of uh, artists doing precisely that, having an agency uh, to, to separate themselves from what's going on? No, agency gives them too much control in the situation. I think a lot of artists in the UK particularly have just had to leave, you know? Mm. Uh, the the culture here, um, the, the, the market here is in a pretty parlous state. Uh, and the pandemic kind of forced a lot of artists, a lot of friends of mine, to confront what they were actually doing and whether they could continue doing it. Uh, and so I have a number of friends who have have moved out of making art because it just became too difficult. And the climate in the UK is not an it's not a good climate. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I can't speak on behalf of Ireland, but I always feel that Ireland has a much stronger relationship with its artists than the than the UK. Uh, and the relationship with the artists is getting weaker and weaker. There was a great advertising campaign by the Tory government a few years ago, which suggested that the ballerina's next job could be in could be in uh, yeah, cyber. I remember you know, that. that sense yeah. Of, <laughs> that sense of, listen, you've had your fun, Art, now knuckle down and do something serious. Uh, and of course, my take would be that the art stuff is is really yeah. the thing that makes human. You know, it's the most important thing, uh, but it's slowly being squeezed. So so there are lots of parallels between the world of King Lear uh, and the artist of King Lear, but the agency did part on the fool's part. I don't think it exists, and it is it is mysterious. Some people think that, that the same actor played the fool who played Cordelia, yeah. so they couldn't be on stage at the same time, but that's hugely unlikely because Cordelia would have been played by a boy and the fool was, you know, probably played by one of Shakespeare's great clowns. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think they would have... They, they would have done that kind of doubling. So why The Fool disappears is, uh, I'm happy not to explain it. But of course, in, in this piece, I'm suggesting possibly they just can't deal with it anymore. Yeah. Above their pay grade is the phrase that I use. <laughs> you are wearing a pair of virtual, or a set, or is it just <laughs> a, a, a virtual reality goggles in, in, in this in particular the, production? Explain exactly what people will see. What are you looking at in the virtual reality goggles? Uh, I'm slippery. I'm slippery myself, Sean, because um, it is a deeply analogue show. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> there is an image of digital, obviously, of a digital communication, but there isn't, it doesn't actually exist. I don't want to give too many sort mm. of, um, too much away yeah. in a way, but so the, the the idea behind the play is that the the fool puts on a virtual reality headset and revisits the production of the play they've left. Uh, so he returns to King Lear after they've gone. Uh, they, he, they, I don't know, you know, mm. what gender is the fool? Anyway, uh, he returns and we use the headset as a way of re-entering that world. And how an audience joined me in that world is really through an act of collective imagining, really, because uh, I ain't seeing nothing in that headset. 
Um, it's just a piece of plastic that sits over my eyes. Uh, and I, I, I love it because it's a, an invitation for an audience to see in their heads as opposed to see with their retinas. Um, uh, we go back in, we see a blinding in the play of King Lear. We see an interval in the production of the play of King Lear. Uh, we also see an extraordinary scene in King Lear, which is called the Dover Cliff scene, where, where a son... Uh, persuades his blind father to believe he's on the edge of a cliff and his father who is despairing throws himself off the edge of that imaginary cliff and for me that's a that's one of the greatest scenes in theater uh, and a testament to the power of the imagination to take someone to a difficult place and then to bring them back safely so there are loads of ideas and mm. themes swirling around an image of me on stage effectively blinded by by the the digital age. We spent most of lockdown watching theatre, in inverted commas, through screens, you know, and I think the play is a response to sort of profound <laughs> depression yeah. that took place uh, in that. You know, we all sat in our tables and our kitchens and our bedrooms and we, we watched things, but and I just, I kind of slightly gave up the will to live, I think, in terms of watching things, so, things through digital yeah. screen. Well, this is quite definitely live then. And I suppose what you're talking about with those virtual reality goggles is it's a touch of the radio thing, isn't it? The pictures are better when you don't see them. Pictures are better on radio. <laughs> that, that's kind of what you're touching on. And a full circle back to your first question, which is I think the work is quite traditional in that respect. Yeah. And it absolutely, it, 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 it's a call to the imagination and to see with your ears is the line in the play. See with your ears. That, that's what, there's a lot of other stuff as well. I don't have those he that headset on the whole time. There's an appallingly dirty joke that takes place at one point. <laughs> it's sort of a mixture of stand-up because I kind of see the fool as, I suppose a contemporary version would be a stand-up comedian. And again, stand-up comedians have been pretty useless at making the world a better place, uh, other than in momentary well, laughter. Yeah, they make us they make us laugh. Tim, it does sound as if there's a, 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 a lot to be said about it and a lot to be seen and imagined within it. Thanks for talking to us this evening here on the programme. pleasure. A that pleasure, Sean. Tim Crouch speaking to us about his show Truth's a Dog, Must to Kennel. It is at Smock Alley Theatre and it will be there as part of Dublin Theatre Festival from October the 10th through until October the 14th. Pan Pan is a regular at Dublin Theatre Festival and this year it brings its uh, new show, a show called History Play, a play about, not surprisingly, history with performers and a live uh, historian on stage every night. But in case you wonder, we are told in the programme that this is not a TED Talk, this is not earnest and this is not palliative. So to tell us what History Play is, I am joined by two of the creators of the piece, Anton Ovchinikov and Faith Jones, who are not only creators, they're also performers in the piece as well. How did this piece come about? Because it can be hard to describe what exactly it is, but if you tell us, uh, uh, Gavin Quinn's, uh, the director, yeah. his, his initial research, I think it'll give us a sense of it, Faith. Yeah, so he went and interviewed a set of uh, historians and asked them kind of a, a set of pre prepared questions, I think. And then he kind of used that research to figure out how he was going to interrogate the idea of history. And Have you any idea of the kind of questions he was asking? Yeah, I'm trying. He would ask like, "What is history?" Yeah, that was the first question usually, and then it would kind of go on to maybe more specified to the person. 
yeah, yeah, depending on on the what what the field of research for different persons like that about Irish history or about archives yeah, or about yeah. different exactly. specific things. Yeah. Well, yeah. P- we people will have picked up Anton from your accent and of course from your name of Chinikov that um, you are from another part of the world. In fact, you're from Ukraine. Yes, I'm um, from Ukraine. It strikes me to be doing a play about history uh, and being from Ukraine. I mean, history is happening in in front of y- your eyes when you look at your own country. Is, is that kind of affecting what you're doing in the show in any way, do you think? Uh, for me, what was interesting, it's also, we talked quite a lot about that the, what the historians, when they, when, they, when they talk about the history, they say that the history is something that happened 30 years ago and then. Mm. So they, they don't look at the last 30 years. It's more kind of the um, silence part, you know, yeah. they, they don't talk about that. That's, but for, for us, it's my feeling really that in Ukraine, the history has happened exactly uh, last 30 years, the main events in Ukrainian history. And there's so many things happen and everything is changing so fast that uh, in terms of everything like political, economical, cultural things. So that's really there's kind of feeling that history is right here and right now. Yeah, it's not in the past at all. In fact, you you, tell me about your own company because you've had to move from Kiev where you're in what part of the Lusitania now? Uh, Now I live in Lithuania. Lithuania, I beg your pardon. Lusitania is not a country. Last last, uh, six months, uh, uh, but all my life I've been living in Kiev in Ukraine Mm. and uh, I met Managed last 15 years a dance company, Black Orange Dance Production Company, and also I'm a, I'm a head of the NGO UA Contemporary Dance Platform. That's a non-government organization. Yeah, non-government yeah. organization, kind of association which helped to link uh, Ukrainian choreographers with European colleagues on. So the show that we're talking about, History Play, I said, uh, Faith, that it has performers. You, you two, are there other performers apart from yeah. the two of you? There yeah, are there others are, involved yeah. there as well. Plus a live historian on yeah. stage every night. <laughs> Explain that aspect of things to me if you've got that far in the rehearsal process yet. Yeah, so I think there's still some kind of working out to do in terms of how exactly the historian will be used fully mm. in the show. But I think the idea is that they're kind of a live resource, would you say, Anton? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they kind of like, they're used, I don't want to give away too much now, but yeah. they're they're used in a way that they maybe provide some level of analysis as to what's going on and, and in terms of what we're talking about and how much we try and cover in the show because there's obviously so much history to get underneath. Um, and, and so are you telling a particular part of history or the history of a particular country in the show? No, I think we really try and get go everywhere with it. Like I, I, I think it's mostly rooted in Irish history um, because that's most mm. of our reference points. Um, but, you know, like even there's bits where you mention Ukraine or we talk mm. about America or we talk about, you know, we kind of jump from topic to topic. Yeah, yeah. First World War, First and, World War. Uh, yeah. but it's also like historian represents more like an official source of history, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. like which 
people sh should trust and believe and we as a performers is more like a like ordinary people we're just yeah. talking about history like people talk yeah, about yeah, that yeah. with our different opinions and understanding of the history and like this in fact I, i think part of the rehearsal process and the research process was yourself and anton faith having a, a slight difference of opinion around the start of the first world war yeah, yeah we we do actually we disagree on whether or not it started over someone being killed uh, buying a sandwich <laughs> uh, anton claims it, it wasn't that but i was under the impression well, like I was coming at it from like just hearing bits and pieces about you know the war I never really looked into history mm. I did geography in school so I wasn't really there for you it You knew but where it happened but you didn't know I what know, happened I didn't know what happened <laughs> at all and Anton really filled me in <laughs> but yeah so there's kind of bits like that dynamics over people's understanding and nuances to what's going on when we ask questions It also struck me I know it was a couple of maybe about a month back we had a Ukrainian artist in who was speaking about um, the period of our independence being won here in Ireland there are there are parallels in Ukrainian history now your independence was not achieved at that time yeah But there are quite definite parallels. Have you noticed more and more as you've been here, Anton? Um, I think there are there are many things which looks quite similar, but they have quite a different, absolutely different timelines. Mm. <laughs> no, so when 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 the events has happened in diff different years and how it started, maybe how it how it ended, but in general, like all this, there there are many very similar thing like you know this old fight for freedom there's a, uh, a lot of the, the, the uh, questions of language is very well, political subject yeah, in indeed, Ukraine the recent production of translations uh, at the Abbey Theatre yeah. which was a Ukrainian production using Ukrainian and Russian instead of English and Irish yeah yeah so then the civil war also at the beginning of the 20th century then you know now this very powerful movement like the, the decolonialism you know all of this conversation which started now so yeah there's a lot of similarities in yeah. 10 seconds what are you hoping people will take away from history play faith i hope they ask questions that's what i i think that's what yeah. we're trying to get from the show is for people to ask bigger, better questions when you're thinking about history. Questions, not answers, Anton. Yeah, more <laughs> questions than answers, yeah. <laughs> history play. By the way, I should say that uh, some of the historians who will be part of this, the Parliament of Historians is yes. how they're described. That's the collective noun. Uh, Katrina Crow, Mary Daly, Dermot Ferreter, uh, R.F. Foster, John Horn, Jin uh, Meyer, and Sandra Scanlon. There are others in there as well. Uh, but they will be part of History Play, which is at the bank uh, at the Digital Hub in Dublin from the 7th to the 15th of October, previews on the 5th and 6th, and dublintheatrefestival.ie for full details on that and indeed everything that we have been talking about this evening here on this special arena programme.